Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to the New Denver Church podcast. We are close to wrapping up our journey through the book of Leviticus. So this is part 12b of You Lost Me at Leviticus. My name's Norton, and today uh, we might have a long one. We'll see, uh, because we're going to revisit chapter 25. We looked at that in the last message. And then we're going to go back to chapter 24, and we're going to look at two fascinating parts of chapter 24, um, some rules about bread and olive oil, and then a story about blasphemy. So uh, get ready. We've got a lot to cover today. Let's start with revisiting chapter 25 and what we discussed in the last message. So uh, there was this Sabbath year provision. Remember that? Where it says in verses one through seven, uh, you can work the land that you own for six years, but on the seventh year, you need to let the land rest. So on the seventh year, don't work the land anymore. And what's interesting is farmers already know this, right? If you grew up on a farm or you work in agriculture or horticulture, um, you know this is true, right? They, you already know the land is, is precious. It has to be taken care of and that every few years, the soil and its nutrients need to be renewed. It, it needs a process of rest and renewal. You already know that, right? And then, of course, there were other passages we looked at where God says, the land is mine, it's not yours to do with whatever you want, right? And if you don't take care of the land, if you just do with it whatever you want, if you abuse the land, if you don't give the land the rest it needs, that it will eventually become hostile to you. That This creation will become inhospitable to you. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that in the book of Leviticus, that the land, if you don't take care of it, it, it will become hostile. It'll, it'll turn on you. The first time I read that, I thought, man, I mean, Leviticus is speaking to us today, right? This environmental crisis that we're seeing today. I mean, Leviticus is calling out our abuse of the land today because we've seen so many of the things that we and I'm speaking the collective we, humanity, and probably Americans bear the greatest burden of this. So many of the things that we've done to the land over the last hundred years or so, that we've actually started to make the land inhospitable to us. We haven't taken care of it. We're destroying our own land. We're destroying our air. We're destroying our water. We're destroying our natural resources. We're destroying our climate, right? Right? And this ancient book of Leviticus 3,000 years ago is saying, yeah, yeah. And if you keep doing that, if you don't treat the land as God's land, if you're not good stewards of the land of this precious creation, there will be long-term consequences. You will destroy the very place God has given you to live and it will vomit you out. And so there's really... I think two compelling reasons from the book of Leviticus for us, and really the Bible as a whole, it's not just Leviticus, but two compelling reasons for us to be better stewards of creation. And the first is so that we just don't destroy it for future generations. And we all know we're, we're currently destroying it. Right? If we don't change some of our collective behaviors as humans, then 
there will be, in fact, there already are, and there will continue to be significant long-term consequences for the generations that follow. So um, you might be thinking, well, what do I do? And I'm, we're not going to spend the whole podcast talking about that, but let me, let me just throw out a few suggestions, just ways you can start thinking about this. Um, diapers. <laughs> I mentioned that in the last message. Uh, when we had our kids, when my wife and I kind of looked more into the issue of using these disposable diapers, we did some research and we realized, oh my gosh, it creates so much unnecessary waste to, to use disposable diapers over and over and over. Waste that will be sitting in landfills for hundreds of years. And that disposable diapers, like a lot of disposable products, use precious natural resources to be able to make them. Because this disposable diapers, right, if you have kids, you know they're magical. I mean, they are, they're filled with some sort of chemicals. They're made of this special kind of plastic stuff that's extra absorbent. I mean, that's why they work so well. They're able to absorb a lot of stuff, and, and it, it's amazing how they can sometimes work. It's really expensive to do that. And I don't mean expensive money wise, it's expensive on the environment. One estimate is that one quart of oil is used for every single disposable diaper to produce that plastic like absorbent material that they're made of. And so, as we studied all this, we took the plunge and we said, let's use cloth diapers which are actually way cheaper for the consumer. Like they're way cheaper for families to use actually cloth diapers than disposable diapers. They're way cheaper to be manufactured and they have almost no impact on the environment. Now, that's just one example of something that has become so commonly used that most of us don't even stop to think about the impact that these common things that we all use, something like diapers, the impact that they have on creation. And so that's where you can start asking other questions. And and I'm not just talking about diapers. Um, You could start asking like, what about all the clothes that I buy? Or all the clothes that I buy? Or the products that I buy? The electronics and everything are the things that I'm buying made of more sustainable materials that are better for the environment? Um, could I use less disposable products and more reusable products? And, and that's one where it's easy to rationalize. We did that with diapers at first. Well, if you use reusable products, you have to clean them and you have to wash them. And I'm sure that takes a lot of water and that takes energy. And that's, that's probably actually more expensive uh, and harmful to the environment to use all that water and energy to clean things and reuse things than just using disposable products. And that's just incorrect. I mean, that's just a common fallacy. The cost of manufacturing and shipping and stocking and selling disposable products to us as consumers over and over and over and over and over almost always far outweighs the cost of buying reusable products once and then reusing them even if that requires cleaning them. That's almost always better on the environment. 
Uh, what about also not even just buying so many new products all the time? What about wearing our shoes a little longer or our clothes a little longer before we replace them or sticking with our devices a little longer before we upgrade them? I mean, one of the biggest problems is the sheer number of unnecessary and excessive products that are being manufactured that we continue to buy when we don't really need to buy them. Now, again, we could go on and on, but you get the picture, right? Things that we seemingly do every single day that we don't even think about, products we buy, are having a huge impact on creation and and a detrimental impact at that. And if we don't make changes in our behavior, all the natural scientists in the world have been telling us and will continue to tell us, along with the book of Leviticus, if we don't make changes in our behavior, we're going to destroy our home, the land that God gave us to live on, the land will become inhospitable. Now, here's the deal. I think there's actually a second reason for taking all of this really seriously, and it's even more important than the first reason. The first reason is think about future generations and the home that we've been given and don't destroy it, right? But here's what sustains me when I make an inconvenient choice, and I'm not necessarily putting myself forward as a great example of this, because it's hard for me to do this. Um, But that's what this is all about. It's about inconvenience. I mean, it, it really comes down to just inconvenience. I mean, using cloth diapers was inconvenient. Disposable diapers are way more convenient. Riding a bike to work or taking public transportation to work that's a mile or two away is more inconvenient than simply driving your own car by yourself, right? Taking a little more time to think about your purchases or spending my money or on products that are made from sustainable materials, which might be a little more expensive oftentimes, it's inconvenient, right? And doing all of those things to help out some future generation in 50 or 100 or 250 years, I mean, that might inspire some people, but honestly, that does not always inspire me. Because scientists have been telling us for for decades, right, that that we're destroying the environment for future generations, and, and most of us haven't really responded to that or done much about it. So here's what gives me, I think, more strength and more inspiration to make choices that are often inconvenient. It's not just that we need to take care of the land for future generations. It's that God created me and he redeemed me and he gave me a new life and the God that I worship and trust in, it's his land. And so I make inconvenient choices and do things because I know he deeply loves his creation and I do it out of respect and love for him and gratitude for him. The Bible says his creation will sing his praises even when I don't. And so I can either join in that praise and be part of the praise and the flourishing of his creation in this world, or I can work against it. And for me, when I start to think about it that way, are the choices I'm making either working against the flourishing of his creation 
and the way it praises who he is? Or am I working with it? For me, there's something deeply meaningful about that, right? It's God saying to Israel, and I think God saying now to followers of Jesus, hey, other people may not care about my land. They may not have the same perspective as you do. They might not care about my creation, but I want you to be different. I want you to live in harmony with creation. And when other people see the way you're living and they change that behavior and they maybe live the same way, that's great. And if they do that, that's great. But whether they do that or not doesn't really matter. This is about doing what's right and good and beautiful. This is about honoring and respecting me and embodying my presence in the world. And so for me, even when I'm washing cloth diapers, right? Or if I'm riding or you're riding, I don't actually ride my bike to work, but perhaps it's when you're riding your bike to work. What if we could say, even in those choices we've made that are a bit inconvenient, in the most ordinary things of our lives, what if we could pause to say, this is holy. This is a holy moment because even in in reusing these products and not using disposable products, even in riding my bike, even in what I am doing, it's holy and it's sacred and it's different and it's a part of living out God's sacred purpose in my everyday life. And here's the deal. When a community can do that together, like Israel was called to do, like the church is called to do, when a community can live out those values together, when a community can embody care of God's creation together, that will be a powerful and holy and meaningful endeavor to be a part of. Now, let me... Let me add one more thought about this sabbatical year idea, and it's, it's less connected to the environment, but I, I want to talk about it because I think it's important. This idea where Israel is to work for six years and then take, um, and, and then let the land rest one out of every seven years. Now, Leviticus doesn't say it explicitly, but this is a practice that we should follow in our own work. And in our own lives, as if our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our souls are like the land and that we too need rest. Not just one day a week rest, but extended rest every seven years. It was seven years ago. Uh, that the elders at our church uh, came to the pastors and said, hey, we think the pastors um, need to take a sabbatical every seven years. You guys have been working a long time. You you need a season of rest. And and so they gave each of us, and I was the first to take one, they gave me a, a sabbatical summer, basically. It wasn't a whole year off, but three months off, 12 weeks of paid time away from work. And it was black and white, like literally, you are not allowed to do any work for 12 weeks. 
You can't even check email. We don't even want to see you at church. Disappear for three months. Go do things that will help you rest and reconnect with God and recharge. And so in the summer of 2014, our family uh, did that. We went to Missoula, Montana uh, to rest and recharge. We rented this house there um, right below this mountain called Mount Jumbo. Uh, And Mount Jumbo was literally in our backyard. And so every morning I would get up and get a cup of coffee and I would hike to the top of this mountain. It was about a mile or two to the top. And when you got to the top, you could see the entire city um, and all these rivers right right below you, uh, depending on how high you went. And I remember thinking during this sabbatical time in Montana, I remember thinking, I wonder what God is going to teach me. Like, what's God going to show me? What, what life-changing experience am I going to have during this time away from work? Uh, what mountaintop experience am I going to have? Because I'm literally going up the mountain every morning, God, and I'm expecting and waiting for you to show me something or reveal something or, or, or do something amazing, right? And one morning, I'm sitting on top of Mount Jumbo, and I remembered that there was this passage in Leviticus that had talked about this sabbatical experience of letting the land rest every seven years. And so I looked up the passage. I had this little Bible I had with me in my backpack, and, and I read chapter 25. And, and it says, you work the land, and it produces fruit for you for six years, but on the seventh year, you do not work the land. You don't focus on the fruit or the produce or the productivity or the results on the seventh year. And then it hit me. (laughs) What I'm looking for in the middle of this sabbatical is results. It's like I'm still focused on fruit and results. And what am I going to get out of this time away? Because this idea is so deeply ingrained of all of us. What will this produce? What will I get out of it? What will be accomplished And the sabbatical year is the opposite of that. A sabbatical is resting from that need to work, that need to produce, that need to accomplish, right? Sabbatical is not about work and results or what I'm going to get out of it. Sabbatical is about stop working the land. Stop focusing on the results. Rest from all that. You can focus on work and results and fruit the other six years, But this year, and for me, this summer, this time in Montana, I just want you to rest. Do things that are restful. Just be with God. I mean, keep hiking up the mountain and spend time with me. That's great. And if God shows you something new in that process, awesome, right? There's a sense in Leviticus 25, hey, if there's seeds that you didn't scatter or plant, and there's fields you didn't plow or prune, and and there's actually fruit that grows during the sabbatical year, that's great. You can eat that. But if there's nothing new that grows, that's fine too. In fact, that's actually the goal of sabbatical. If your sabbatical time feels like a really long nap that your exhausted body and your exhausted soul desperately needed— then that's exactly what 
you need it. That's what sabbatical is all about. And so if you're listening today and you've been working in a career for many years without any true breaks, I mean, maybe there, there's some good natural breaks that we sometimes have when we move from one job to another, things like that. But if you've been working hard, if you've been driving hard without any true breaks in a long time, if you're tired, if you're exhausted, and this isn't just about ministry, I mean any career, every career, if the land of your soul is weary and finding it hard to produce new fruit, if all the nutrients have been used up, you probably need a sabbatical. Now, how do you pull that off in your job? I don't know. You'll have to figure that out. Um, thankfully, there's more and more companies and businesses that are offering this to their employees because they see the value in it. People actually produce way more and better fruit in the six years they have if they have some kind of rest in the seventh year. Regular rest makes work better. I mean, this is a principle for all of creation. It's just like the Sabbath day principle every single week. Your work isn't really complete or whole until you take a day to rest from that work. That's what sabbatical is all about. And maybe you need to figure out a way to bring this idea into your life and into your work. Now, uh, we need to move on. Um, this was like supposed to be the shortest part of the podcast today, and we're 22 minutes in. So uh, put on your seatbelt. Let's speed up a little bit. The next huge section of chapter 25 is about Jubilee. Uh, so remember, every 50 years, anyone who has had to sell their land or their lives to become indentured servants, they get everything back. All debts are canceled on the Jubilee year. Now, there's a number of questions that I just want to address. Um, we talked about this a fair amount in the last message, but there's some additional instructions. This is a long section. And so let's just kind of fly through those real quickly. Uh, one question is this. Um, isn't Jubilee itself a bit unfair? I mean, what if someone goes into debt on year 48? They have to sell their land to someone else. Let's say they sell their land to this other person who buys it for $50,000. Let's just use our money. $50,000, right? And so they're going to get that. The, the second person who sells it, it will get that money and try to pay off their debt to get out of debt. But two years later, the land is given back to them for free. And now suddenly the person who bought the land for $50,000 has to let go of it for free. Isn't that unfair? Isn't that unjust to the person who spent all the money on that land? Well, of course it is. And that's why there's provisions and there's rules governing this. So verse 15, chapter 25 says this, you are to buy from your own people um, so now it's talking about the person who's buying the land on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee. And they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. So when the years are many, you are to increase the price. And when the years are few, you are to decrease the price. So the price of the land is calculated based on the Jubilee. 
If there's a whole bunch of years left until the next Jubilee, then of course the land has a lot more value. If Jubilee is one or two years away and you're about to buy it and you're going to have to give it back for free in one or two years, then the cost is significantly lower. The land is not near as valuable. So there's this entire economic system and it all works together and it's so fascinating. I mean, economists can really dig into this and study it. And it's always about creating equity and justice, not just for the poor, but for everyone in the system. In fact, you you could really summarize the entire system in this way. Verse 14, it says, if you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. So whenever you have to sell land or buy land, whenever you do business with each other, whatever economic transactions are taking place between people, do not take advantage of each other. Don't take advantage of another person in the community. And there's all kinds of additional rules that flesh this out. Uh, Verses 35 to 38 basically says, don't charge interest or profit from each other. And this is often called uh, usury, uh, which doesn't mean don't charge any interest whatsoever. It means don't charge excessive interest. Don't get rich off of someone else's hardship. If someone falls into a hole and you have to lend them money, be fair. Don't charge a whole bunch of extra interest and take advantage of the situation. And just so you know, this provision is unique in the ancient world. None of the other law codes in other ancient cultures had anything like this. Only in Israel, only in Leviticus does it say, don't take advantage of other people in this way by profiting from the difficult situation that they are going through. Uh, Verses 39 through 43 say, not to make fellow Israelites slaves, where, where there's no hope of paying off a debt. So there seems to be some room for indentured servitude, but slavery is more indefinite. Slavery is not really when you're paying off a debt. It's where you're owned by someone else. And so these verses say, don't make fellow Israelites slaves. And there's this communal focus in all of these rules and provisions that basically is saying, here's the deal. You need to look out for others in your community. You don't take advantage of other people in your community. This is a community that will be different from all the other communities. This is a group of people that will operate differently. Now, that doesn't necessarily give you license to take advantage of other people outside of the community, right? There's actually some additional provisions about how they should treat people outside of the community. And sometimes it's different and sometimes it's the same. But there is a sense that there is a different standard within the community of Israel, that we are going to be like a family and we're going to take care of each other and we are not going to take advantage of each other. And if people from the outside want to join the family, then we're going to have open arms and we will welcome them in. And hopefully they're going to see that our family, our nation, our community of faith is different. What they experience here in our community is different than what they experience in the rest of the world, right? They're going to see a group 
of people who loves each other in a unique and distinctive way that doesn't take advantage of each other. And in fact, you see some of these things come up in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus says one time, people are going to know you're different. They're going to know that you're my followers. How? Because of the way you love one another. He doesn't say because of the way you love the world. Of course, he wants his followers to love people in the world. But he says, here's how people will know you're different. Your community will be different. The way you love each other will be different. In fact, Jesus uses his family language to talk about the community of faith all the time. That other followers of Jesus are your brothers and sisters. That's your true family. And even in Matthew 25, there's a famous passage there where where Jesus talks about uh, feeding and helping and 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 sheltering and and giving clothes to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, and he's essentially talking about loving other followers of Jesus in the community of faith. He's not talking about love in the greater world. He's saying your brothers and sisters, people in your community of faith, when you show love to them, you're really loving me. Paul will talk to churches about how their love. For one another should be unique, how they will forgive each other in unique ways, and they'll bear one another's burdens. In fact, at one point he says, if there's a dispute that arises between you and someone else in the church, you shouldn't take that person to court. That's the way the wider culture deals with disputes. They go to court and they handle it there. And it's not that that's wrong. It's just that's the system of the wider culture. And when it comes to things that are going on in our family, in our community, we need to find different ways of pursuing justice and forgiveness and reconciliation and conflict resolution. We're going to be different. And so Leviticus 25 is essentially about modeling a different way, even when it comes to economics and land and business transactions. These are spiritual things. They're not secular things. They're not things that have nothing to do with your relationship with God or your faith. In fact, they're a huge part of everything that has to do with your relationship with God and your faith and your part in the community. Now, there's other details in this chapter uh, about houses, right? What if you have a house and you have to sell it and it's in a walled city? It's not out In the country, it's not associated with agricultural land. What do you do? Is that different than land that you have to sell that's out, you know, farmed and and with agriculture? There's rules about the tribes of the tribe of Levites. Uh, They don't own land uh, because they're priests, and so there's some special provisions for them. So it's easy to kind of get lost in all the details, and there's some interesting things there, but don't miss the larger point. We, as God's people, are going to be a holy community. We're going to be a different community, a community that does not take advantage of each other, that loves and cares for each other in a way that models and embodies God's own love and care for us. That's what it means to be holy and different. Now, let's jump back to chapter 24. We skipped chapter 24 in the last message because there was just too much to cover And chapter 24 goes in a bit of a different direction. So let's look at it um, today. There's two big sections. Here's how it starts. Chapter 24, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, 
Command the Israelites to bring you clear oil of pressed olives for the lights so that the lamps may be kept burning continually. Outside the curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant law in the tent of meeting, Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. So real quickly, let's pause there. There's this lamp in the tent of meeting and the priests are always to keep it going. It's always to be going. And uh, in fact, the word continually is repeated three times. So it's very clear. Don't ever let the lights go out. Always keep them going. And so there's instructions given to the people at large that you need to bring olive oil continually to the priests. You need to provide for the sustenance to keep these lamps in the tent of meeting going. And then it says, verse 5, take the finest flour and bake 12 loaves of bread. Uh, Arrange them in two stacks, six on each stack on the table of pure gold before the Lord. This is a table that was right near the lamps inside the holy place of the tent of meeting. It says, by each stack, put some pure incense uh, to represent um, the bread and to be a food offering presented to the Lord. This bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly, Sabbath after Sabbath on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant. So there's this light that needs to be kept going every single day. And then there's this bread, 12 loaves that you bake every single week. And the people are to supply the grain for this. Uh, And the 12 loaves uh, represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's baked every week. And there's new bread that's put out every single Sabbath. So again, there's this reminder that time is measured by weeks and by the Sabbath, by this holy day that is set aside. And so every single Sabbath, uh, the priest will put a new set of bread on this table where the near the lights. Um, and now the word is covenant is used. And so there's a sense that this light is going to continually kept going and this bread will continually be baked. And these two things, the light and the bread, represent God's covenant with Israel, Israel's covenant with God, their relationship together. And you can see the symbolism from both sides, from Israel's standpoint, the symbolism that they are going to be his light in the world. And so maybe the light is always reminding them that they are his light, his holy community in the world. And they are to continually bring their gifts, their fruit, their grain, the oil from their olive trees to him in gratitude for all that he has given to them. But there's also a sense that the light represents God's light, right? God will continue to always be their light and to guide them. And the bread will represent God's provision for them. God has given them land. He's given them grain. He's given them food to sustain them. And so, like so many other things in Leviticus, these two things, this light and this bread, they will be physical, symbolic markers of who the people are for God and who God is them. 
And what's fascinating is that these two symbols endure. I mean, you read the New Testament and just just go back and start reading one of the gospel accounts or all the gospel accounts and see how many times the idea of light or bread shows up. I mean, it's all over the place. I mean, John says in the first few sentences of his book, Jesus is the light that has come into our world to shine in the darkness. Luke and Matthew start their books by telling us of Jesus' birth. And you know where Jesus is born? In Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means in Hebrew? It means house of bread. (laughs) And there's symbolism there, right? And we could go on and on. Light and bread are these enduring symbols all throughout Jesus' ministry. And they've always been enduring symbols for people of faith. They remind us of God's provision God's love, God's rescue, Jesus' body broken for us, the new light that shone on the dawn of Easter morning on the empty tomb. And so as we enter the season of Advent, if you're listening to this when it first comes out, we're about to enter into Advent soon, you can lean into the power of these tangible physical symbols, especially light. Light is a huge aspect of understanding what Advent is all about. And so maybe for you, it will be candles that you light every single night in Advent. Maybe there's something rich you do in your home or your apartment with light or candles to be physical symbols of your faith in God and who he is to you. Now, Last part we're going to look at today because chapter 24 switches gears significantly in verse 10. And look at what it says. It says, Now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father went out among the Israelites, and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. So suddenly we have an actual story. I mean, Leviticus has been almost entirely uh, rules and rituals and practices and instructions. And then remember, all of a sudden in chapter 10, we had this strange story about Aaron and his two sons offering this strange fire and this incident that happened. And this story is a bit like that. We get back to instructions and we've been doing instructions for so long. And then all of a sudden, right after instructions about bread and olive oil, out of nowhere is a narrative story. There's a fight that breaks out between these two guys. And we're told one of them is half Israelite, half Egyptian. And that's an important detail. The story leads with that detail, and that's included for a reason. We'll see why in a second. The story goes on. Uh, The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name. And that always means God's name blasphemed the name with a curse. And so they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Debri, the Danite. And they put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. So the guy that was half Egyptian, we now get some details about his Israelite mother. And, and basically, those are given so that it's really clear. Like, this is a true story. This is about something that really happened. This isn't just a what-if scenario. This is a real guy. Here was his mom. Here's her name. 
Here's the tribe that she was from. And, and apparently, in the middle of this fight, the man curses God's name. And we don't know why. Right? We don't know if he has uh, pent-up anger towards Israel uh, because he's torn between these two ethnicities or these two backgrounds. We don't know if he doesn't really believe in Israel's God. Um, we don't know if he thinks it's all a sham. Uh, we don't know why he curses God's name in the middle of this. Um, but apparently there's people there and they're gathered around and there's conflict is happening and this fight is brewing and people are watching this. And this man suddenly in the middle of the fight says something. We don't know what he says, but he says something like, may, may Yahweh be cursed or, or may God be damned. And everyone is like, whoa, did he just say what we think he said? Because cursing God, blaspheming God is this, is this horrible thing. I mean, you're basically saying, when you say something like that, you're, you're saying, God, may you be killed. <laughs> may you be gone. May, may you be damned. Right? You're, maybe this guy, is, is, he's physically fighting with this other guy, right? He's, he's physically maybe assaulting another person. But now in his words, he's essentially assaulting God. And for a community, remember, a community centered on God's presence. I mean, literally the camp sits in the center around the tabernacle where God's presence is. And they're centered on God's blessing and this idea that God is with them and he is always going with them. For someone in that community to actually curse God, to with their words banish God or assault God, that is a serious thing. And so the people... I mean, they know what to do in a case like this because this is basically one of the Ten Commandments. And there's been other provisions in the laws that say you do not blaspheme or curse God. There has to be consequences for something like this, right? But here's the catch. He's half Egyptian. So it's like the community isn't sure. He's not a pure Israelite. So they're asking the question, does he have to follow the same rules as the rest of the community? Or are there different rules, different provisions for someone who is a foreigner? Or what about someone who's like half and half? They're just not sure what to do. And so they bring the case to Moses and Moses has to decide. And this is one of those passages that provides case law. And we actually discussed this term a few weeks ago. There's parts of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that provide very clear instructions, right? Don't steal, don't commit adultery, you know, don't eat these kinds of foods. Um, but these kinds of laws aren't always comprehensive. They can't cover every single scenario. So there are also cases that arise from time to time. And uh, the people don't know what to do in these cases because there's not clear laws. And so they bring the case to Moses or to the elders or to the priests. And the leaders are going to have to figure out what to do. And they do. They figure out what should be done. And then those cases become important enough that they're often written down and included with the rest of the laws and the practices. And so sometimes when the people who did the final editing and compiling of Leviticus decide, hey, 
this specific case where this thing happened is really important. So we need to include this in all of the laws. Um, sometimes they're not sure where to put that specific story or that specific case. And so they put it in an odd place or odd to us. Maybe there are good reasons, but for us, it doesn't feel like it fits in Leviticus 24. That's why it feels like it's sort of a strange departure from where we've been going. But apparently the scenario comes up. Uh, the community brings this guy to Moses and here's what happens. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp and all those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head and the entire assembly is to stone him so yeah this is serious right so 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 there's a few things here uh this is probably what would have happened if this was an israelite Um, so moses's ruling is basically saying, even if you're only half Israelite, you're still part of the community. And you have to maintain the standards of the community. And blasphemy is no less wrong for you than anyone else. And so you are going to have the same consequences as anyone else. Now, hang on a second, because if you're like me, you're already thinking uh, blasphemy should not equal stoning. This consequence is crazy and unfair. So we'll talk about that in a second. But basically, Moses says, here's how it should happen. You need to go outside the camp. And uh, that's an interesting detail. I I, I almost sense a recognition here that this is not the way things are supposed to work. People are not supposed to blaspheme God and have to pay this kind of consequence, right? It's almost like something is wrong with this whole scenario it it, 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 this shouldn't be happening. And so it needs to happen outside the camp, right? And then Moses says, every person who heard this blasphemy needs to lay hands on him first. And that's important because there's a, this acknowledgement that he's not just sinning against God. He's not breaking a faceless rule. He sinned against the community. He sinned against these very people by cursing the name of the God that they worship and that they live by and that they represent and that they embody in the world. And so this is his penalty. This is how it's going to go down. He'll be stoned by the community. Now, the story goes on. And it actually gives more instructions at this point. It's kind of like, here's this story. Here's this thing that happened. And this is a good place to zoom out just a little bit and say some more things about blasphemy and human life. And so it does that. And we get some insights in this section that are really important. So let me read through it real quick. Verse 14, anyone who curses their God will be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord is to be put to death, whether a foreigner or a native born. When they blaspheme the name, they are to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. So a connection is made between blasphemy, consequences death, taking a human life, the consequences death. Uh, Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution, life for life. 
Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I'm sure you recognize that part. It goes on, the one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native born. I am the Lord, your God. So first of all, it's very clear, hey, these laws apply to everyone in the community. Same standard, whether you're native born Israelite or not. Uh, There's also this connection made, as I pointed out, between blaspheming God and taking the life of a human being. It's almost like the text is saying these two things are equal. They're similar sins that require similar consequences. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, And then the last thing is this idea of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And this is one of those passages many of us are familiar with and that many of us would say it still feels so barbaric, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It just, it's based on the idea of revenge. If somebody does something to you, you get to do it back to them. Isn't that just paying someone back? Isn't that revenge? But here's the deal. There's actually a really strong sense of justice in this idea of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, for a couple reasons in that culture. Number one, um, when revenge took place, when someone took revenge on their own, outside of the system, it almost always got out of hand, right? So when something does something wrong to you, the temptation is you want to get them back and make them pay. And oftentimes, when you get them back and make them pay on your own, the revenge is worse than the initial offense because you're doing it with anger and with with frustration and with rage, right? And with temper. And, and, And because it was worse then, the initial person often feels the need to get back at you and they're gonna make that worse and then you're gonna get back at them and you can see the spiraling escalation of revenge and violence. And so it's almost like eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is saying, no, 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 no. This will not escalate. There are provisions that will govern this. The consequence can never be greater than the crime. If this is the crime, then this is the consequence. And that is it. You don't go beyond that. You don't go past that. This will not escalate. That's an important principle of justice. Now, a second thing that's going on here, in theory, this also leveled the playing field. It creates a society where equity will exist, where the rich and the poor aren't going to be treated differently. I mean, if you're rich and you've hurt someone else, you have the same penalty as everyone else. You can't get out of this just because you're rich. And if you're poor, it's the same way. You have the same penalty. You don't get to say, well, I'm poor. It's the same penalty. This levels the playing field. Now, in practice, we don't really have examples um, like this, where it's like two people got into a fight and one person broke the other person's arm and they're separated and they're taken before a judge. And the judge says that the first person has to have their arm broken by the second person now to make up for it. So go ahead, break, 
Jack's arm to pay him back for... Like, in practice, it's likely that other consequences were negotiated by the parties involved and by the people that they brought the, the issue to. But this principle of an eye for an eye is what provides the standard and ensures that this is dealt with in relationship and in community. See, this is important. If you have hurt someone else, it's not that you've broken a law and that the state is going to try you and there's going to be prosecuting attorneys representing the state. And if you're convicted, you'll be put into a prison by the state. That's kind of how things work here. And it's not that that's wrong. It's just that that removes the entire situation from the relationships and from the community. If you've hurt someone else in ancient Israel, you have hurt that person. And you have to make restitution to that person. And the restitution has to be equivalent to the damage that you have done. And and there's one scholar, John Goldengay, who suggests some really creative ways this might have actually worked in ancient Israel. He says this, if the individual offender broke someone's leg, then until the leg mends, the wrongdoer is going to have to be that person's leg helping him or her to get around, plow the ground, harvest the crops. You see, that's the equivalent restitution. That's the equivalent of making up for the wrong that you've done. And in a system like this, you can actually see that the offender is treated with dignity and respect as a human being who has hurt another human being. And that the key problem is that they need to be reconciled and restoration needs to happen within the community. Now, obviously the biggest consequence is not just eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, but it's life for a life. If you take someone else's life, then... Really, the consequence is your life should be taken. Now, uh, Leviticus connects blasphemy with murder here. When you blaspheme God, it's like you're trying to murder him. That's why the penalty is so great. When you're blaspheming God, it's like you're trying to banish and murder and kill him. And so the penalty needs to be treated as such. And here's what's fascinating. Jesus, even though he has some things to say about an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth, Jesus will actually say something similar about blasphemy and murder in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Remember at one point he says, hey, you've heard the commandment, do not murder. But I tell you, like if you, if you murder another brother with your words... Like if you call someone horrible words, it's like you're murdering them in your heart. And that's just as bad as physically murdering them. And so in ancient Israel, the consequence of blasphemy, just like taking a human life, is stoning. Because basically you tried to take God's life. And you tried to take the life of the community. And these are serious things. Now, it's an ancient culture. And so, no, today uh, we don't stone people anymore for blasphemy. Uh, We have moved beyond that. We see things differently. We have uh, uh, different systems to think about that. 
And of course, we're not ancient Israel, and so these laws are not given to us to literally abide by. But I wonder if we're maybe too quick to read this passage and write it off because of the stoning part, which just seems so ancient and barbaric to us. But what if the lesson in this passage for us is about the power of our words? That we can cut people down with our words. That we can destroy people's reputation with our words. That we can murder people with our words. Think about the hurt that we have inflicted or that people have inflicted by a simple tweet, by a Facebook comment, by a rude remark or a demeaning joke, by a racial slur. Think about what happens to a child if a parent says to them in frustration, I wish you were more like your brother. I wish you were more like your sister. Do those words not murder something deep in the soul of a child? In fact, the Apostle James says in the New Testament, Our words can be a restless evil, a deadly poison. They can be like a match that can burn down an entire forest. In fact, he even goes on to say, this is James chapter 3, if you want to read it yourself. He says, basically, isn't it curious that we can praise God with our words on Sunday, and then we can walk out and we can curse humans with our words on Monday? And not even realize that the humans we're cursing are made in the image of God? That when we curse others, when we murder others with our words, it's like we're cursing God as well. Because we're cursing those who are made in His image. And so the question to conclude with today is simple. What will you do with your words? Today, they're way more powerful than you think. They're more powerful than I think. We can hurt and wound and abuse and murder others with our words. We can also encourage and comfort and lift up and heal others with our words. And so may we all be aware of the power we carry simply in our words. All right, that's it for today. Uh, We have two chapters of Leviticus left, two messages left. So don't give up, hang in there. There are some powerful lessons we have yet to learn and to drive home in this series. So thank you for listening today and I hope you'll Listen again.